0: And take your Bible and go to the book of Jonah. Go to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah, chapter number. Three, we'll look at that final verse. So occupy our attention the whole time on that final verse. We are looking for people to sing specials. And so if you sing a special, you have a song on your heart, please see me. Let me know and we can get you plugged in here. Uh, but uh, I want you to sing and worship the Lord together. Jonah chapter 3 and look at verse number 10. We Remember from last week how the people of Nineveh responded to Jonah's message. We looked at it last week, and I want us to see this last verse. It it just seems to leap out off of that chapter, and so I couldn't lump it in with last week. We need to park a little bit and talk about it. Jonah chapter 3, and look at verse number 10. And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way And God repented of the evil that He said that He would do unto them, and He did it not. You can be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. I want to talk to you this morning about a last-minute stay of execution. A last-minute stay of execution. Dear Heavenly Father, we love You. God, I am so thankful for the moment that heaven came down and occupied my soul. When I believed upon you and put my faith and trust in you, so much happened in that moment. And Father, we see all, we see many of those aspects of what took place in that moment of forgiveness in this very verse. Father, give us clarity of speech. Help us to preach with liberty. Loose my lips. Let me say the words that will penetrate the heart. Holy Ghost of God, speak to us this morning. Weed out those that know you not in saving faith and drive them to the altar. God, encourage those that do know you to lift the voice of praise in what you have done for us. God, speak to us through your word. And for what you do, we'll give you glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. In April of 2014, a man by the name of Bilal was standing on a chair hands tied behind his back, blindfolded with a black cloth around his eyes and a noose around his neck. 2014. Noose around his neck. Belial was set for execution that very day for stabbing... The, to death, the 18-year-old Abdallah. Now, I am leaving off last names to protect the innocent. Amen. Uh, it's, they're hard to pronounce. So, listen. 18-year-old Abdullah was stabbed to death by Bilal during a street ball, brawl in a small town in Rayon in the northern province of Iran. Now, according to Sharia law of retribution, the family, the victim's family, were to participate in Balaam's punishment by pushing the chair out from under his feet so that he might hang by the neck until he is dead. Suddenly, during the activity of this execution, the mother of the victim jumped up on the chair and with her hand laid a blow across the cheek of Balal in as he stood on that chair, noose around his neck, just laid him out with a smack, and after that forgave him of the murder of her son. And as it is a rarity for this to happen, but she excused him from that execution. It was her prerogative to say yes or no to the execution of Balaam. The victim's father then took and removed the noose from Balaam's neck and his life was spared in the last moment. Jonah had come into that city of Nineveh and was basically pronouncing a death sentence. There wasn't a lot to that message. I don't think Jonah had a whole lot of love. I don't think his heart was in that mission trip at all. He came with the abrupt exact words of God saying 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. 40 days and it will be overthrown was his message. Their wickedness had amounted to reach the heights of heaven. It was Wednesday night we were talking about the sin of, of Babylon And wicked Babylon in the future. And how uh, that it rose up to heaven. And described it as brick upon brick upon brick. And it's a very picture of what has happened here. The sin of Nineveh. Brick by brick. Has come into the nostrils of God. To a point that His righteousness and His holiness could not forbear anymore. Patience was done. It was time for judgment. But in mercy instead of wiping Nineveh off the map, instead of causing the earth to yawn and the city drop off into the heart of the earth or raining down brimstone and fire from heaven like he did in Sodom and Gomorrah, God sent a message. He sent a message to Nineveh about the 40 days. Now, the king's reaction was, what we saw last week, was to heed to the warning. The king made a declaration that everybody was to heed the message of Jonah. They were to uh, put on sackcloth and ashes and do that not only to themselves and their families, but also their animals as well. No one would eat, no one would drink, everyone would fast, and they would turn from their evil ways. Now, he made that proclamation to the inhabitants of that city to turn away from their deeds. And it may be, in hopes that maybe God would spare the city. I wonder, how much time did it take? I mean, really. We're looking at a city of maybe, I think we we tallied it up at one point, maybe six million people. Four to six million people in this one area. How do you get a message to four million people? There were no TVs, no radios, no, no broadcasting systems, no internet, no email. There were no billboards. There was nothing like that. How do you get a message to 6 million people in a very brief time? I mean, let's, let's think about it. How, how long would it take? Would it take 10 days of Jonah preaching and what Jonah was saying to reach the ear of the king? Obviously, the king wasn't walking the streets and heard it firsthand. And we, our scripture tells us that somebody told the king. How long did it take for the word to get to the king? Five days? Seven? Ten? How long did it take for the king uh, to process this message and then turn around and spread word through a, through a regal declaration to all the city? I mean, how long did it take to reach the outlying areas, the suburbs, the city, the soldiers, the marketplace? I mean, could it, could it have taken... 10 days, 20, 20 days? I mean, really, how long would it take to reach 20 million people? Could it have taken another five days for everybody to get enough sackcloth and ashes, to get enough burlap sacks to put on them and every cow, every cat, every dog, every donkey in the city and cover them with burlap? I mean, would it take five days, 10, 15? And then, would it have taken, it would have at least taken a few days Of being in that state before God for God to take to to indicate to for God to discover that in every heart in Nineveh there was a repentant heart. A heart that came to God in genuine repentance toward Him. I mean, how long could it take? I mean, you gotta be honest, 40 days can go by quickly. When there's no television, no radio, no broadcast, no no internet, no email. And so I wonder, this very well could have been a last minute stay of execution. It certainly is compared to the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years that they have lived in their cruelty, in their immorality, in their sin, in their injustice, all those times... It certainly was last minute compared to that. But I wonder, Jonah himself went outside the city in chapter 4 and got him a seat. He was wanting a front a front row seat to the destruction of Nineveh. Nineveh. It's almost as though he knew it was going to happen. He was just waiting for it to take place and then nothing. What took place in verse 10 could well have been a last moment stay of execution for the people of Nineveh. Every, Each and every one of us need to understand that without Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we all stand like Bilal, that young man in Iran, standing on that chair, noose around our neck, blindfolded. Not knowing when the next breath will be our last. That is the condition of every person outside of Jesus Christ. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not guaranteed next month. You're not guaranteed the next five minutes. You're not guaranteed the next day and a half. You have no idea when you'll be going out into eternity. You stand there blindfolded, noose around your neck, not knowing when the final moment will come. But God, is in the business of giving last-minute pardons. Have you ever seen them movies where they're about to execute somebody and they're all looking at the phone? They're all waiting for the phone to ring. They're all waiting for the last minute, for the governor, for the president, for the, for the leader of the land to call and stay the execution and stop it to go from going forward. You see, God's in the business of giving last moment a, pre, a, pre, a, a, a pardons upon those who throw themselves on the mercy of God and cling to the saving work of Jesus Christ. What we see witness in verse number 10 could well be the story of every lost person that is crossed into the realm of faith in Jesus Christ. A last minute reprieval. I don't know how many days I would have lived after that moment. I was such a high-handed blasphemer, a wicked sinner, a vile and rebellious young man. I don't know how much longer I had to live if I'd have said no on March of 20, 1994. Driving that I i do not know how much longer I would have had. For me in my heart, that was a last moment, a, a last moment pardon. Before the clock struck 12, I could have been gone into eternity. Every one of us here today must look at this verse and consider the three elements that go into a last moment stay of execution. There are three things that go into that. I want to share them with you this morning. Number one, I want you to see the response of the condemned. The response of the condemned. These people who had lived long and reveled in their morality and sin had an awakening. I mean, that's what we call it. Some people that preach out of chapter 3 call that a revival. I don't call that a revival. A revival is God working in the heart of His people. Yes, people are saved because God's people get on fire and God's people are stirred and they tell people about Jesus and yes, people are saved. That is a revival. As far as we know, there was no little Jewish settlement synagogue there in, in, uh, in, in Nineveh that all of a sudden got, got inspired to, uh, to share the news of Jehovah throughout the city. Oh, this was an awakening. This was people, lost people, sinners being awakened to God's judgment to come. And evidently, uh, and they were awakened to the expectations of God, to His righteousness and their own indebtedness to God. And evidently, without any hope, without any chance of compromise, much less clemency, there is a desperate attempt to respond to the condemnation of God. Now remember, they don't know what will save them. They have no idea. All they know is God's coming in judgment And if they continue on the path that they're on, they're sure to get it. So they reverse course. They respond to their condemnation. Notice, first of all, they trusted in His Word. Look at verse number 10. And although we may have grazed this last week, we may have saw this last week, but I want you to understand, in verse number 10, it said God saw their works. God saw what they did. With this phrase, some might try to argue that pe- the people of Nineveh were saved from destruction by their works. I mean, that's what it says, doesn't it? And God saw their works. And the later part of the verse says that He didn't do what He intended to do to them. <laughs> that He saw their works. Some might argue that we're saved by our works. But what is inherent in that statement? is that first of all, they believed His Word. You see, faith is the precedent, the antecedent, the first starting point of works that are acceptable to God. These works were acceptable. What they had done were acceptable, not because of what they did, but because of their belief. Their belief in God. Notice verse number five in chapter number three. So the people of Nineveh believed God. Then they proclaimed the fast. Then they put on sackcloth and ashes. Then they did this. Then they hoped in God. It has to start with their belief in God. They uh, this this message. They trusted that this message from Jonah's lips was from God, and they believed that Jonah was not some crazy crackpot. Uh, making, uh, making it up as he goes. He's not, some, he's not some end of the world guy with a big uh, plaque on him. You know? I, I don't know what it was. Holy Spirit of God. I told you last week, it had to have been the work of the Spirit of God to take this man and all of a sudden the whole city be shook by his one message. It was the work of the Spirit of God. But they were awakened to it and they believed His Word. They believed that this was no joke. That this was real. That this was taking place. The message penetrated their conscience and it lodged in their hearts. Hebrews 11.6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is and that He's a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. To be made right before God, to be justified, we must believe on Jesus. To be made right before Him. We must trust the Word of God. We must trust what faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We trust God's Word. That's how faith enters into our life. Galatians 2:16 Listen to this knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law but by the faith of Jesus Christ which we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law for the works of the law shall no flesh for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified Although I, love, although I love what was brought up in, I love the fact that I was brought up in church all my life. I, I'm raised in church all my life from the early days. I, I'd always been in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Saturday night, back then on the mountain. I mean, we always went to church. And although I, I was brought up in the church, it was not until I was 21 years old that I put my faith and trust in Him, that I entrusted my life to Jesus, that I came to Him with a, with a sin-soaked life of, of, of profanity and wickedness and, and sins too many to name and laid them at His feet and showed my cards and showed my sin and clung to His cross. It wasn't until then that I believed upon him. If you would be saved today, if you would know saving faith in Jesus Christ, then then you must believe his word just like the Ninevites did. You must take his word as true. Receive it into your hearts. Now the inner lawyer within you, you know the inner lawyer, you'll stand up and say, wait a minute now. If you're going to believe that book, it's got to be true. And I I, I would unquestionably agree with that. And your your inner lawyer may want to cast doubt upon that book. They may want to try to find error and problem in that book. And I say, do your best. Try to find it. I believe this is the perfect, infallible, inerrant word of God. But I don't want to be accused of standing to be judged over the book. I want the book to be judged over me. And I affirm that there are no mistakes in this book. That this is, that I'm holding, is the Word of God. But you're going to have to tell that inner lawyer to be quiet. And you're going to have to believe the Word of God. You could spend the rest of your life, the rest of your life reading this book, and chasing rabbit holes and chasing rabbit trails and trying to find this. Well, that wasn't copied here. And this wasn't that bad. And, and digging down into all, all that. And the devil will take you down a rat hole you'll spend the rest of your life trying to answer an inner lawyer when God's Word has come to you in power and illumination. You need to believe on the Lord Jesus. You need to believe His Word. Believe His Word. That's what the Ninevites did. They believed Him. Notice second of all, not only they trusted his word, but they turned their way. And verse number 10 says, not only that they saw God saw their works, which are directly linked to their belief in him, but God saw their works and that they turned from their evil way. What was the work they did? It was a negative work. They turned away from it. They did not the things that they'd done before. The new belief in God had shoe leather on it. It had an effect in the way they live. You know, the word believe is a is a joining together of two words, buy and live, to live by. To believe something is to live by it. It is to live, to walk in our steps. With the, with, the mental, with the mental truth firmly seated and that mental truth being filtered through my actions. It is to believe on something. To believe something is to act in accordance with it. They not only believe, but they put their belief in action. They, they, steered, uh, they, uh, they steered only by their God-given conscience Steered only by their God-given conscience, they forsook their sin. They turned away from their iniquity and, and, and they did no immorality. You know, back, back, back in verse number, what does he say? Uh, verse number 8. But let man beast be covered, sackcloth as the king talking, and cry mightily unto God, Yea, let every man turn one from his, uh, his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. All they had was a God-given conscience to try to steer them away from the iniquity of their past. And they heeded that voice of conscience. They said no to their immorality. They said no to their iniquity. Their faith was joined with their works. They believed God and that was translated into works. Back in verse number 5. They believed God and proclaimed the fast. And put on sackcloth from the greatest even to the least of them. Their belief was tied to a work. Listen. Your belief needs to be tied to your work. James 2, 17 and 18. Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, A man may say, Thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. It was on January the 2nd, 1994, that my pastor preached a message out of that very text called, Show Me What You Got. And that lady right there walked down the aisle because she had nothing, she didn't have anything. She had a pronouncement of belief, but there were no works behind it. There was nothing linking what she said she believed with her mouth and what she lived in her life. Listen to me. If there's a disconnect there, you cannot be saved. They must be tied together. They must be jointed, irrevocably jointed. You see, there are many uh, that may have heard the warnings of sin and coming judgment and maybe even cried and being sorry for what they've done, but they've never turned away. You see, salvation is both believe repent and believe, to turn away and trust. Second Corinthians four ten, Paul singles out this wrong kind of belief or wrong kind of salvation. He says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. Not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Listen, you can be in church and get sorry over a message, get sorry over your sin, come down to this altar and say something to God and still have the stamp of death on you. Because it is a, it's, it's, it's no different from a criminal who cries over the fact that he got caught. He cries over the fact that he's sitting in a jail cell, not for what he had done, but for that he got caught. It's no different here. It may be a, a worldly sorrow, like the sorrow of that criminal, but it's not a godly sorrow. A godly sorrow works repentance in our hearts. It will manifest itself in us by hating the things we used to love and loving the things we used to hate. Listen, I'm not talking about moral perfection. Don't get me wrong. I'd be the last person to talk to about living absolutely morally perfect. I fail God, I fail my kids, my wife. I I, I, sow, the older I get, the more I see the the holes in my holiness. But here, I do understand this, that I don't love the things that I used to love before I met Him. I don't want to be the things that I was, that that were my dreams before I met Him. I, and I, I loved the places that I despised before I met him. I hated, I didn't like to go to church. I loved college, man, because for the first time in my life, if I wanted to sleep on Sunday morning, I could do it. And nobody would be the wiser. I hated when I had to go home. Because I knew I had to go to church on those Sunday mornings. Hey, listen. When I came to know the Lord Jesus, God put something in my heart to love that which I hated before. And a hatred for that which I loved before or were thoughtless about. No. There is a turning in our way. A repentance that brings a change in our heart. A night and day change. That is the true value of the gift of repentance. And again... This ability, what these people did here, it seems not too impossible, doesn't it? For hundreds of years they've lived a certain way, lived by a certain society and ethic. I'm convinced that, I'm convinced in some sense that there is a God work in their hearts Not a Holy Spirit indwelling like we see in the New Testament. But God worked in their hearts and granted them the repentance to turn away from their sin. What I'm trying to say today is that you going, believing, and trying to reform your life is not going to help either. That's not repentance. Repentance is to come and let God do that work in you. He has to do it. You can't work it up. God does a work of repentance in us. The response of the condemned, but notice also <coughs> the resolution of the court. Look at verse number 10 in the middle part there. They turned away from their, uh, turned from their evil way. Notice this. And God repented of the evil. Now I'm telling you what, if there's ever a sentence that may bring questions to your mind as to its meaning, it ought to be that one. It's difficult to understand what what is being talked about here. In this modern world of ours, oftentimes we've been riveted by judicial proceedings brought to us live from the courthouse. Remember the trial of the O.J. Simpson? I still remember that. I still remember the characters from that in my mind. And that's been decades ago. We've all had riveted scenes from a courtroom drama in our mind. We've been shocked at the arguments of the prosecution and surprised by the eyewitness testimony. We have noticed the facial expressions of jurors and the body language of defendants. In this dramatic scene, a scene where Nineveh has been weighed in the balance and found wanting, God stands as judge, jury, and executioner. And what is seen in the middle of this verse is just as surprising as any courtroom drama you'll find. And God repented of the evil. What a bizarre sentence in this courtroom proceeding. Now I want us to look at this phrase from two different angles. Number one, I want you to see what is communicated here. What is the text saying? Right in the middle of this verse, there's this surprising statement. God repented. It says that God repented of the evil that He'd intended for Nineveh. Yet the word repented here literally means to sigh. To take a deep breath. To take a long pause. Now it's not the sigh of frustration Oh, that's not it's not a sigh of frustration. It's, it, is, it is a sigh of pity. Oh, you know the difference? Oh, it was a sigh of pity. It is a often in the Old Testament, the word that is used here is a word translated comfort. It's a comfort. My pastor, Kim Trivet explained it as someone taking a breather. Someone is angry and is about to take certain actions and we are telling them to calm down and take a breather. Relax. God is in a mode to destroy this city. God is in a posture to crush Nineveh. And then all of a sudden he takes a breather. In other words, God looked down from the height of heaven at the sad sackcloth people of Nineveh headed towards destruction and he sighed in pity toward them. He relented in his anger toward them. The people of Nineveh repented Of their evil sin, law-breaking, immorality, violence, they turned from their evil. But God, what did God repent of? Well, He didn't repent of iniquity. He didn't repent of sin, anything that He had done. He repented or turned away or sighed or had pity on them and turned away from what He would do. What He would bring was calamity destruction, and a death sentence upon the people that He intended to bring, and rightfully so, and judiciously so. Oh, thank God that if we confess our sin and and believe on Jesus, if we confess our sin, He was faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 2 Peter 3.9 says that the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is longsuffering to us, not willing, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is not slack in His promise of judgment. He's not unjust because He doesn't rain down fire from heaven on the sinner, but He's longsuffering to those that believe, to those that repent. God's desire is to relax His hand in judgment, to relent, to hold back the winds of wrath and postpone the judgment. That's what's communicated here. If you're here today without the Lord Jesus, your greatest desire right now is that God would breathe a sigh of pity on you. That He would hold back. Notice not only what is communicated here, but what is indicated here. Now I want you to understand that God is not backed in a corner. When these people of Nineveh repent, and they do these works believing God in His message, and they do these works of repentance, of turning from their sin, they're not backing God into a corner. God's not saying, well, pfft, I guess now I'm just going to have to forgive you. I'm just, just going to have to change my mind. It looks like I'm going to have to repent. No. These recent works do not undo the deserved execution of decades and hundreds of years of iniquity and sin that brought their sin to the eyes of God. One preacher said this, Their empty stomachs and scratchy cloths and reformed ways could not could do nothing to erase their long history of wickedness. They're just as guilty as ever. I don't care how much soot they put on their face. I don't care how nasty their garments are, how much they cry and wail. They're just as guilty as they ever were. And God is not obligated to spare them not one iota. As a matter of fact, in 2 Kings 23, King Josiah turned to the Lord in sincere repentance. And in verse 26, the Bible says, Notwithstanding, the Lord turned not from the fierceness of his great wrath. What he's saying there is that this man repented and God did not turn away from his wrath. God brought judgment and wrath just the same. You're not going to back God in the corner and say, all right, well, I repent. Ha <laughs> ha! you like that? I'll back you in the corner to where you have to save me. No, the truth of the matter is there's no such thing. You cannot do that. Because this is simply the volition of God's will. So what did happen in that moment? If we know that they didn't back God into a corner to make Him repent, to, uh, repent and change His mind, what did happen? Why the sudden change of heart? In Exodus thirty-three nineteen, God told Moses, I will make my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious unto whom I will be gracious, and show mercy unto whom I'll show mercy. God spared Nineveh purely of his own willingness. Purely of his own desire. When a sinner comes to God turning from sin and believing on Jesus Christ, it is not a moment of backing God into a corner. It is a moment of a desperate, hopeful plea of a condemned criminal saying, Have mercy! Have mercy! And God looks at a bloody cross and does have mercy and withholds His judgment. Does not hand out and an any and he does uh, does so out of an inexplicable love from the heart of humanity. I want you to know that God is willing to forgive you. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done. God is long suffering, He is merciful, He is gracious under whom He'll be gracious, He is merciful under whom He'll have mercy. I guarantee you, if you come by the way. You come by the blood of His Son. He will be merciful. He is satisfied in Jesus. If you'll come and fly to the cross and fly to Jesus, He'll be satisfied. He will come with mercy and grace. Through faith in Jesus Christ, your guilty verdict will be overturned. Instead of death, you'll be given life. Second, thirdly, lastly, I want you to see now the response of the condemned the resolution of the court, but I want you to see the release of clemency. Look at verse number <clears throat> number 10, the latter part. <clears throat> and God repented of the evil that He said He would do unto them, and He did it not. Just in the same as the case of Bilal, the man that was sentenced to hang, who was scheduled to die for his crimes, in that last moment, with a good slap on the cheek, was granted a stay of reprieve. so Nineveh, smacked with the message of Jonah, receives a reprieval in the final moments. I want you to see just a few things here. Number one, I want you to see the ruling rescinded. Verse number 10 just simply says that he had said that he would do unto them that he repented of the evil he said he was going to do. God had set a date for their destruction. From the moment Jonah, from the moment Jonah began to preach 40 days and Nineveh would meet its demise. And yet God let that day pass. And he granted clemency. The day of destruction that God had declared earlier, he withheld. You and I need to understand that we, like Nineveh, are under a sentence of death. God has revealed it through His Word that the wages of sin is death. God has revealed uh, that there is a punishment, there is an end result of sin, and that is death. There is no debate. There is no argument. There is no cross-examination. There is no jury deliberation. It is an open and shut case with us. We have, every, we have already received the death penalty. Ezekiel 18.4 says that the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Romans 2.5 and 6. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up wrath unto the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds. There's no doubt about it. You're guilty. In your due, the full brunt of the wrath of God. But in Jesus, in Christ Jesus, the judgment that belonged to me was fulfilled. Christ, the pure Lamb of God, took upon Himself the destruction that should have swept me into eternal damnation. And through faith in Jesus Christ, my guilty verdict is overturned. And I come to Him in saving faith. Listen. There's a ruling that is rescinded. Every one of us stand guilty before God. But God gives us a recension of that guilt through Jesus Christ. The ruling rescinded. Also, a reprieve released. He said in verse number 10, He did it not. You know, if you know anything about the book of Jonah, maybe you've read ahead, you know that after this point, the spotlight is really back on Jonah. In the first two chapters, really, it was talking about Jonah, the wayward prophet. Chapter number three seems to be the spotlight is on Nineveh itself. But for the rest of the book, it's back on Jonah. You know the story. Jonah gets mad because God gives him mercy. And we start looking at the prophet. For all we know, Jonah, I mean, Nineveh is left broken, repentant, forgiven, and most of all, spared from judgment. If you read further in the Bible, you will find a surprising development. In the book of Nahum, judgment again is declared to Nineveh. He begins by declaring that the Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. Well, yes, Nineveh was spared judgment in Jonah's day. But it was not prolonged. Eventually, God did judge Nineveh and all of its inhabitants. Judgment was just around the corner. They may have gotten a reprieve in the day of Jonah. But judgment was still coming. You know, for every sinner. If you're here today and you're without Jesus Christ. For every sinner. Listen. You're under a reprieval. You're under a merciful Long-suffering moment where God is taking a break, a break, where God is withholding wrath. He's taking a breather on you. But ultimately, death and judgment are sure to come. Hebrews 9:27, and as is appointed man wants to die, and after this, the judgment. Judgment's coming, whether you want it or not. Just like for Nineveh. This was a reprieval, but it was still coming. The good news is, that's the bad news, but the good news, the good news says that even when we were sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. When we deserve to die and burn in hell for all of eternity, God's only Son, Jesus, came to this earth. He died on a cruel cross and He gave His life's blood as the payment of our sin. He became the subject of God's full and final wrath in that moment. Jesus died there in our place. He died in your place. He shed His blood on your cross. That should have been you that hung there. Jesus died there. He was buried in glory to God. He rose again the third day and He's alive forevermore. That's the good news. That's the gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in your place, in your stand. Jesus died for you. And it is through that sacrifice God satisfying, God is satisfied by the blood of Jesus. You do not have to live under an impending death. You don't have to continue through life knowing that I might, have had, I might have had mercy today, but that mercy may run out tomorrow. Through the blood of Jesus, there is eternal salvation found in him. Flying to the cross. God is satisfied, eternally satisfied in his blood. God graciously grant, grant, grants a not a momentary reprieve, but not an extension, but a full pardon to guilty sinners if you'll come and receive Christ, if you'll know Him in saving faith, there is a free and full salvation awaiting you. God is pleased with His dear Son. God is pleased with the cross. The veil has been rent in two. The doors of grace are wide open. Come to Jesus. Ever wonder why old sinners, people that have been saved, shout and sing? Ever, ever see? You ever wonder why they get tore up when they start talking about Jesus? They get tears in their eyes when they they begin to talk about how God saved them. You know, it's not necessarily for what God gave them. I find it more often than not, it's not about what God gave me when He saved me. It's about what God took away. It's about what He removed. I mean, I praise Him for. I praise Him for the gift of eternal life and I praise Him for you know, the peace that He gave me and His love that He gave me and, and everything like that. But boy, you want to talk about something that turns my truck and turns my, cranks my truck. Listen, to talk about what God took away. What should have rightfully been mine and He withheld. I'm more happy about what He didn't give me than what He did give me. Remember when I was younger, there was a song that was sung in our church, and, uh, and the song is about that very thing. The chorus goes like this. You took my guilt and shame, and all my sinful blame became as yours. You opened wide your hand, and as a guilty man, you bore my crown of thorns. You took the death I earned, and all that I deserved on Calvary. Lord, thanks for what you've given, but most of all, thanks for what you took away. Praise His name for what He took away. Judgment, God was gonna overturn my life. And yet He gave a reprieval. When I turned in Him and believed His word and trusted in His Son, He gave me reprieval. He gave me a last second, a last moment stay of execution. Studying for this message, I, I come across something I gotta share. Come across something. It was a it was in a book about the death particularly focused in the 19th century. That's the 1800s. There was much of a debate on capital punishment just like there is today. And in that book, they quoted a fictional book. This is fiction. An author writing a novel paints the picture of six pirates that are being hanged for their crime. In that moment, five of them were hanged but one was Spain. Two men witnessed this happen. They're standing out in the crowd. Remember, this is fiction, but it paints a beautiful picture. Two men standing in the crowd. One man looks at the other. He says, look. Look at that clemency. I can't remember the exact wording, but his point was this. Look. There is something wonderful about showing mercy on the you. Look at it. There's not a dry eye in the crowd. People in their hearts were longing for some kind of mercy to be shared. Look, can't you see how wonderful mercy is? The other man said no. No. People must pay for their crimes. People must be called accountable for their crimes
1: or else every
0: criminal, every criminal Themselves the winner of the lottery. <clears throat> Every criminal will think themselves the one in a million. Like that man up there, that would get a pardon. Pardon. ex machine. I said, Yeah, he's got to be exactly right. For somebody to get a pardon like that, you do feel like you're one of the million. You're one in a million. You're the one that won the lottery. God, all oh, of His grace and mercy. Why would You see fit? In front of the man in the field, Jesus described a man who plowing the field, and he uncovers a treasure. And for joy, sold all that he had so that he could possess it. Man, when I got Jesus, like, I, I got the water I got to know. I got to the judgment to come. I was granted new life. I received much more than I could ever possibly imagine. I want it all with Jesus. I am special. To come and open my eyes and save me from the wrath to come, draw me to Himself. One day I'll spend eternity with Him. Boy, you want to better believe? I feel like I won the lottery. I got it all—one in a million. Oh, listen—if you're here today without the Lord Jesus, come, come and receive Him. You don't know when your day of reprieval will run out, whether it's tomorrow or ten years from now. Come to Jesus, know Him in saving faith. Trust Him this hour. Let's all stand to our feet, every head bowed and every eye closed. <laughs> a last, a last moment stay of execution. I wonder, I wonder this morning, do you know Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior? Have you placed your faith and trust in Him? Listen, come and repent. Repent and believe the gospel. Come and trust Him. Turn from living life of sin and self and put your trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Do so now. Don't put it off another moment, another hour. Come to Jesus. Some of you have sat in these pews for years and I just don't know if you're saved or not. Come to Him. Believe on Christ today. Don't put assurances in your family. Don't put assurances in your mom and dad. Don't put assurances in, in, in your... Well, I, I know a few memory verses. I know this. I know that. Listen to me. Come to Christ today. And don't put it off. If you're here today and you're saved by God's grace, would you not just revel in glory in the fact that He took it away? And everything that you rightfully deserve, He took away on Himself. You come. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for saving faith. God, thank you for coming and drawing me to Yourself. Thank You for God. If it wasn't for You, I, wouldn't, I couldn't have believed on You. If it wasn't for You, I couldn't have repented. Thank You, God, Father, for coming and singling me out. As Jonah said, salvation is of the Lord. It's Yours to give. And God, one in a million, You gave it to me. Father, we pray You'd give it to someone else. Whoever they may be this morning, they're in this place and they know they're lost. God, I pray they'd come and know you in saving faith. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. I'm trusting to the unseen house. We hope and pray that today's episode of the Unseen Hand podcast has been a help and blessing to you. For more information such as other podcasts, ministry helps, blog posts, previous sermons, or how to contact Brother Brown directly, just go to RonnieBrown.net. Join us next time for another message from Brother Ronnie on the Unseen Hand podcast. Until then, may God's unseen hand gently guide you on your journey home the unseen hand.